0: I'm Dean Mitchell and this is KPMG's Forensic Lens, detecting lies, deception and fraud in the world of business. Corporate crime isn't a victimless crime. There are both very real victims and very real offenders. These offenders have spent decades perfecting the art of deceit before they bring it into our workplaces. How do we spot them? How do we know if the person sitting opposite us right now is a corporate criminal? us waiting for their chance to make us their next victim, and what is a corporate psychopath? I'm again joined by forensic psychologist Oscar Williams. Oscar has spent his life working with criminals inside prisons and in the community, understanding how and why people deceive, and why some turn out to be corporate psychopaths. So who better to help us understand why and how these tricksters of trust make their way into our workplaces? Oscar, thanks for joining us again. We spoke last episode about the corporate psychopath and narcissists. Who is this corporate psychopath that you were speaking about?
1: Corporate psychopaths.
0: Yeah, psychopaths,
1: usually kind of the way I see them is masters of impression management, right? These guys see lying as pleasurable. They're very parasitic. The scary thing about them is they don't experience any empathy. And there was this really interesting study done a few years ago where they had a group of psychopaths that were exposed to two types of pictures, right? One set of pictures was, I think, a tree, a rock, and a house, just general pictures. And another set of images were a knife, blood, and another distressing image. And what they found is in psychopaths, the area that lit up rather than insular, which is your empathy center, what lit up was language. So we also know that these guys tend to want to use language as a way to express themselves, right? So they don't express the emotion. They don't understand the emotion, but they can use language to get around that. So they'll mimic emotions because they know emotions are important in society, but they don't actually know what emotions are. They don't experience things like feeling upset or being scared or trying to understand how you're feeling so manipulation for them is completely normal part of the day they just see it as part of life sometimes they assume that other people are, are like them that other people also lie and as I said in our last podcast you know these guys will often tell you a story that has a tiny grain of truth and then just lots of lies
0: how do I know if I'm sitting opposite a corporate psychopath
1: I suppose if you notice someone that just looks like they're too good to be true And you're sitting in an interview and you feel like you've lost control of it. So you've noticed that this person is starting to steer the interview in a way that they want, and you're noticing that they're quite superficial, but also really, really charming. So these guys tend to come across as these amazing employees who put in all the hours and things like that. But usually that's a sign that there's something not quite right. The best way to identify the person you're sitting in front of is a psychopath is if you hear other people in your company or at your your workplace saying, hey, like, do you know that Joe Blow is actually quite arrogant and quite cold-hearted and throws people under the bus? Or if you notice someone who constantly takes credit for something that you know they didn't do, usually a sign of this person's trying to get something out of me and they're probably manipulating me or trying
0: to. And psychopath doesn't mean criminal, of course. There are some people that have psychopathic tendencies. Who are they and, and how do they operate in the world? So what we know with psychopaths is they're one percent of the population but about 14 to 15 percent of the prison
1: population but we also know that psychopathy is a spectrum so some people can have like you said some characteristics of psychopathy so they might not necessarily meet the criteria for psychopathy but they can still do a lot of damage so these people might still be able to do their jobs and put some of the work in but they'll manipulate kind of bits and pieces psychopaths on the other hand just manipulate everything so they'll find people in the organization that they know have access to informal power so informal power you know the secretary who has access to a ceo's diary or the guy who does the shredding of confidential information they'll befriend those people and then use that information to be able to engage in fraud or to be able to manipulate the organization in giving them higher positions so these guys really get ingrained in the organization they'll work out the people who they should befriend and the people that can get them to a higher level, and they'll completely disregard anyone below that. So you'll often see this split where managers will be like, what do you mean? Like, John's amazing. He's this great guy. He's got a lovely family, all that kind of stuff. But the people underneath him will be like, you know, I'm working really long hours and he's telling me that I'm crap or he's telling me that my work's not good enough and that I need to do more. So usually seeing that split is a good indicator that something's not quite right.
0: Are they born that way or do they become that way?
1: That's still something that the research is split on. So there is some research to show there's a genetic predisposition, right? Some brain imaging of psychopathic brains show that the area of the brain that does look at empathy, so the insula, is actually smaller in size, which would indicate that possibly they're born that way. But some characteristics of psychopaths like being parasitic or engaging in kind of irresponsible behavior or being manipulative, they can be learned behaviors. So it's kind of that nature-nurture debate. Part of the psych community says it's very much genetic, but there is a part of the community that also says, well, there might be some nature that comes into play. Because to be fair with you, there are some psychopaths who actually use their power for good, right? So they might use their ability to charm others to get money for a donation drive or something like that. The ones that we worry about, the ones that are within organizations who do a lot of damage because it's self-serving, right? It's money, prestige, power, And it's done through a criminal
0: aspect. So psychopaths aren't always that scary person in the corner. Sometimes they're quite charming.
1: Usually you see kind of, you know, people think of psychopathy and they think of Hannibal Lecter. Yes, there are people like that, right? But generally speaking, they're going to be seen as the great guys at work who are really, really nice, sometimes a bit flirty, you know, really great communicators can show you a lot of work output. What you don't realise though is that the work's actually being done by somebody else and they're taking the credit for it and also not realising that they're being really nice to you because, you're someone who can be manipulated. So like I said, they kind of go through these three-stage process. They'll assess you first. They'll go into a new organization and go, right. I need to work out who the power players here are. So they'll look at someone's usefulness, whether they're a source of money, power, sex, that kind of stuff, influence, and then they'll manipulate. And what they do is they carefully craft messages to be able to build and maintain control. And what they tend to do is they'll find what are referred to as pawns in the organization. So someone who might be vulnerable, who might have had something awful happen to them and they'll befriend them and be like, oh, you know, I'm here for you, I'll help you. And then quickly they can change that and be like, you know, now that I know some secrets about you, like how about you tell me what's going on in the CEO's office? Or can you tell me, you know, what's been minuted in the last meeting at a higher level? So they'll manipulate, manipulate, But just as quickly as they manipulate you, they then abandon you. So a lot of the times people that have unfortunately been victims of these guys, and I'm saying guys because it generally is men, end up kind of waking up one day and being like, what's going on? Like when the lies come out, they don't believe them, right? They still believe the perpetrator rather than the information that's being presented.
0: It's a really interesting point you raise there about most psychopaths are guys. Certainly most corporate criminals, the research suggests, are guys. Why is that?
1: Well I think first of all generally speaking in terms of crime we know men commit more crime than women do anyway part of it could be that you know men are more driven towards powerful positions so they're more likely to be kind of those go-getters and want to climb the corporate ladder and men are more likely not to think through emotionally right not saying that women are all emotional but women have a much better capacity to understand emotional intelligence right they will look at a situation and go right if I do this action this person will be hurt and this is what it means for them when men are seeking power or prestige it's kind of that blindsidedness you know it's that one aim that I have so they're more likely to do more damage and of course you know statistically speaking still at the moment when we're looking at CEO level positions it generally is mostly men and we know that the typical fraudster is someone in their 40s or their 50s, usually first-time offenders, have university degrees, higher-level positions in those organisations. So it's probably part of the reason. But there are still female psychopaths, right? I don't want people to think there's no women who engage in psychopathic behaviour. There definitely are.
0: And you touched on there the typical fraudster. Can you tell me more about that? Who are they?
1: Again, mostly men. We tend to see kind of 40s to 50s, those positions in power because for you to engage in fraud you kind of have to have some influence right you want to be in a position where people aren't going to question you if you're just coming into an organization and you're at a junior level you're not going to have access to the people that actually make the big decisions where there's money involved or accounting so they usually kind of have to climb a little bit and once they get to a certain position that's where you can engage in more fraud because like I said it's about establishing relationships they're usually seen as highly respected high level of superiority they're often seen as friendly, likeable. Very rarely would they be described as kind of loners. So fraudsters, like I said, they kind of don't just manipulate the situation. They manipulate everyone around them.
0: And do these people join organisations to commit fraud or are they opportunistic? A
1: bit of both. So we know these guys will seek out positions in relatively new organisations or organisations that push the envelope. But a lot of the times when it comes to fraud, what happens is sometimes these guys will walk into a situation and an opportunity presents itself. So someone might not even be thinking about engaging in fraud but all of a sudden they're in a position where they do have access to the accounts or they have access to some form of power and so this opportunity presents itself and then they go with it right and it's kind of the fraud triangle stuff really applies here opportunity my motivation you know they kind of look at what's the risk of getting caught but more importantly like if I get caught what's the likelihood of being punished and if I get punished what's the likelihood that's going to be bad we know with kind of white collar crime the sentences are relatively short because white collar crime is never viewed the same as violence. You know, you hear someone who's murdered someone and you go lock them away for life. You hear someone who's stolen some money and it's kind of like, oh, well, that's a bad thing. But, you know, it hasn't really hurt anyone in particular. So they tend to get away with quite a lot more. And hence why fraud can happen quite regularly because even when they get caught, the punishment is small. And then after, you know, they rationalize the crime and go, this is fine. Everyone else is doing it. I just got caught.
0: Rationalization is such an interesting issue and I've sat opposite fraudsters for for many years and the one thing that still amazes me is that need for them to have to rationalize their behavior. Other criminals don't necessarily need to do that to the extent where fraudsters inside an organization, they'll feel aggrieved because they haven't perhaps got a promotion and they've lost out on $10,000 a year and they will steal exactly $10,000 a year. Why do they think that way?
1: I think you have to realize that because most fraudsters, it's their first crime, they don't want to be associated with criminals, right? So they straight away want to kind of identify as, oh, I'm just a battler who try to save his family or try to do the right thing or try to increase the share value of a company. So they're more likely to rationalize because A, they don't want to believe that they've committed a crime, but B, it's kind of like what we talked about in the previous podcast Rationalization sometimes results in lower sentences, right? So they might be like, oh, look, yes, I did throw a bit more money around than I was supposed to, but, you know, it wasn't that bad. It's not like I went and stabbed someone or it's not like, you know, I hurt somebody. It was just a bit of money and I'm sure we can get it back. So rationalization often is about protecting your ego. So they don't want to believe they're just like a normal criminal. I mean, even the term white collar crime, it's got its own little silo, right? <laughs> Rather than you're a criminal, it's like you've got this special provision here. We're going to call it white-collar crime and you're going to be treated differently.
0: What are the differences between white-collar criminals and the rest of the crooks?
1: Big, big question. So It really depends on the type of offending. A lot of the times, white-collar criminals, it's about money, prestige, and power. When we're looking at violent offenders, violent offences mostly are about power or control, right? If we're looking at things like DV, it's power and control. When we're looking at someone who decides to run a gang, it's about making some money. But again, it's about power and control. White-collar criminals, it is more kind of about making money if we're thinking about fraud. So they'll look at other people and go, ha, like all of these people have these amazing lives and this person on Instagram's on a private jet. Like I should be able to do that. So again, they kind of rationalise it and go, well, I'm just trying to live the American dream, so to speak, or kind of live the Western world's way of living. So I think kind of that's the bigger difference. Usually it is about trying to keep up with the Joneses, whilst general criminals, it's about getting back at someone. And like I said, for psychopaths, it's also a game and they kind of enjoy the process.
0: It's interesting because we know when we sit down with a criminal, they're going to minimise their behaviour. The one thing I've always found really fascinating with fraudsters, which is different, Even when they want to tell you all of the fraud they've committed and they tell you about the crimes they've committed, they often underestimate their frauds by many, many multiples. And that's not actually them deceiving you. It's them deceiving themselves, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's that self-deception that we talked about before, right? It's not wanting to realize that actually what they're engaging in is really, really problematic. And I think, you know, some of the criminals that I've worked with who might have engaged in robberies of banks and stuff, they go, well, they're insured, right? So, no one loses anything, like the bank will get its money back. But a lot of the times, you know, you want to lie to yourself and go, oh, you know, everyone's making out to be this awful person, but it's not really that bad. And like you said, when you're like, hey, mate, do you realize across, you know, the last six months, this is the amount of money that was lost, they kind of get, a bit of a fright. And oftentimes you'll see them stutter a bit and then still try to find a way to minimize that, even though you've presented them with the facts.
0: And when you confront those fraudsters with the facts or call them out on that deceit or or that undervaluation, do they react differently to other criminals?
1: generally speaking when you call a fraudster out say if we start with the psychopaths right they'll do what we talked about before they won't get embarrassed they'll just adjust the story so they'll go oh yeah but actually, what you're missing is X, Y, and Z. Other fraudsters tend to deny, or a lot of the times what we see is blaming others, which you don't tend to see in other criminals. A violent offender is not going to blame someone else for their crime because that's what prisoners call a dog act, right? Or it's ratting someone out. So a lot of the times other criminals will actually admit to it eventually and be like, yeah, yeah, I did that, right? A lot of the times fraudsters will blame someone else, play the victim, deny, or find a scapegoat. And they'll say, well, actually, yes, I did do this. However, it's because I was under pressure. Or yes, I did do this, but it's because our projections were supposed to be us making a profit of a million dollars and we were under. So that's why I was made to do this. They always want to find someone else to lay the blame on. They don't want to take any responsibility. Even like what you said, is you present them with all of that information, they'll continue to deny, 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 or try to minimize it.
0: And finally, if I'm looking in my organization and I'm trying to find that fraudster, Are there some things I I can see? Are there some telltale traits or is it all different?
1: When we're looking at the research into psychopathy or, or white collar crime, Oftentimes, the only way these guys get caught is through whistleblowers, right? So listening to your stuff is really, really important because like I said, these guys will know that you're someone in power. So the way they present themselves to you will be very different to how they present to people that are their subordinates because they know that they have to keep you happy so you don't feel like there's anything going on. So a lot of the times, if you notice a team that's quite unhappy or there's grumblings or someone saying that this guy took credit for it, I'd be looking at that you want to get the information from people that see these guys on a day-to-day basis because like i said psychopaths they can present to you for short periods of time with that impression management stuff but they can only hold on to it for so long because it takes them energy so you want to get access to the people that see them in their natural habitat on a day-to-day basis because they're the ones that are going to see the true behavior because it's over you know Separate times at different times of the day, whilst you might just see them in a board meeting or you might just see them when you're having a quick chit chat.
0: Sadly, these fraudsters and corporate criminals are often good at what they do. They take our trust and they use it against us, lining their pockets with our cash. But often, they also get caught. When they do, they end up in an interview room, opposite a detective or a corporate investigator. Next episode, we'll be joined by Professor Becky Milne who has developed interviewing techniques for police forces across the globe to learn what really happens inside the interview room. Most of the, you know, the research really shows that you cannot detect deceit through nonverbal behaviour. So our brain has so much cognitive resources. So if you are lying, you're using up some of your cognitive resources to think about the lie. So you have less resources to move. Their eyes give it away. They will fidget more. You know, this is pop psychology. You know, leave it on the television. If you'd like to know more about how KPMG works with organisations to prevent deception and restore trust, head over to our website, which you can find by searching KPMG Forensic. I'm Dean Mitchell, and this is KPMG's Forensic Lens, and I'll see you next time.